or his own goodness or from his own self-perception. He does not appeal to his merit. He does, it is not the result of a religious ceremony or any personal goodness. He is not saying, I am righteous because I took the Lord's Supper. I am not righteous because some priest or some pastor or somebody declared me righteous or said I was. Or he's not declaring I'm not righteous because I did some good thing or I checked off the boxes and I did my devotions today and I said, and I read X amount of passages of text in the Bible and I was kind to my angry neighbor. I'm not righteous because of those things. My righteousness comes from heaven. I am righteous because God declared me righteous. This is one of the true, unique things about the Christian faith is that we have what the Reformers called an alien righteousness. That means it comes from without. It comes from God. Christ is our righteousness. God is the source of our righteousness. Every other religion that I can think of, you tick off the box, I did a certain thing. I went to, I went and had mass and I said, I did a certain penance and I said certain prayers in a certain way and I acted in a certain manner and I did certain things and I can check off the boxes and therefore, look God, I'm righteous. See, I've checked the boxes. It's not the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith, God is there going to say, yeah, there's a whole lot of boxes you didn't check. But I'm your righteousness. This should be good news to you and I. Did you sin this week? I know the answer. Yeah, so did I. I did not become, I did not lose my righteousness when I sinned against a holy God, when I thought the thought, when I did the deed or didn't do the right deed. Because my righteousness is in heaven. Christ is my righteousness. That is good news. And so the psalmist appeals to God, my righteousness. O God of my righteousness. God has declared him righteous. Or we should say in right standing. What places a person in right standing with a holy God? God declares that individual in right standing with God. If you are in Christ... You are in right standing with God. I'm not saying we don't need to repent of our sins or anything like that. We do that every week. That's part of our our church service. It should be part of our makeup of every day that we call upon the name of the Lord when we have grieved Him. But God has declared those in Him righteous, in right standing. And so answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. This is great. He now recalls the past. You have given me. You've given me what? Relief. A benefit received and remembered. You have blessed me in the past. What an important part of prayer. What an important part of calling out to God. I remember the good things that you've done. Oh God, I am 
in right standing with you because you have declared it so. And I remember the great things that you've done. I remember how you saved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins and you made me alive together with you. By grace, I've been saved. I remember that while I was yet a sinner, you sent your son to die on my behalf. I remember when I was in distress and you relieved me. I remember when everybody was coming against me and you took care of me. I remember when I was grieving the loss of a loved one and you were there and you comforted me. I remember all of these things. You have delivered me from the pa- in the past. He recalls the past mercies of God as the grounds for His present help. Because you have been faithful in the past, I know that you will be faithful now. I know you will. I don't know the means by which you're going to um, demonstrate your faithfulness, but I know because I've been with you a while and I know that you have always been my strength and my fortress and my protection and I know you will be now as well. So be gracious and hear my prayer. Show favor to me as you have done in the past. So do it now. Do not withhold your favor. So this first verse, this first appeal to God, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This is a prayer that begins with adoration. It begins with extolling the greatness and the bigness and the power of our great God and Savior. This is a great way to begin prayer. I know oftentimes we are desperate and we begin with, help me, help me, here's what I need. Here's the list of stuff I need. Let me tell you, David needs, he has a list of stuff that he needs. He's going to get to that. But he begins with how great thou art. That's a great place to begin prayer. After all, isn't that what Jesus taught? Our Father, the one in heaven, holy is your name. So before we get, Lord, I need my daily bread. Lord, before I get to forgive me of my trespasses, Lord, before I get to, I don't want to be led into temptation, deliver me from the evil one before I get there. My Father, the one in heaven. Your name is holy. Prayer begins with adoration. This is a great place to begin, to set our focus upon the Most High God. And I am not about to say that God won't hear your prayer if you don't keep this for It's just a, a great way to begin prayer. It's the way we begin our service. Have you noticed? Every service begins with God. Because God is our focus. So we should probably begin with God. So that's the very first, that's the appeal or the call to God. Answer me when I call O God. And he gives a rationale. And then David shifts gears and he does something really amazing. He now, it's kind of a speech to men, to humans. And he says, O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? So the first thing we want to ask is, who are these O oh men that David is calling out to? O oh men. Because these, I don't believe, took me quite a bit of time 
on this, but I don't believe these are just any individuals in general, not men in general or mankind in general. There is a very specific group of men who are slandering or dishonoring David. These are the elite in Jewish culture. These are the influences in Jewish society. The reason I say so is because in Psalm chapter 62, verse 9, I'm going to get a little tech. Is it okay if I get just a little technical for just a moment? And then I'll get untechnical. The, the term there in verse 2, O men, is literally b'nai ish, which means sons of man. That's how that would be a literal translation, sons of man. And in Psalm 62.9, we see this phrase, very interesting. Oops. Yeah, so, oh, 62.9, I was in the wrong chapter. Those of low estate are but a breath, but those of high estate are a delusion. That word high estate is b'nai ish. You who are the elite, you who are the influences in our society, you who are somebody. And so B'nai Ish is used in the Psalms to speak of those who are the movers and the shakers, the influencers in society. In Psalm 62.9, it uses it for those of low estate as B'nai Adam. Again, sons of man, just a different... um, just a different phrasing. But I think here the omen speaks of those who are of high estate, those who are somebody, the influencers. They are not pagan. They are those who should be orthodox. They should know what God has required of them. And you, sons of man, why are you slandering me? Why are you turning my honor into shame? This is what they are doing. They are slanderers. They are bringing shame. They are denying the dignity of David. The psalmist now is seeking deliverance from these falsehoods. These are individuals then who varnish their deceitfulness with lies. They are likely, by by some of the language being used here, they are likely turning to idols for help because they're their fields are not producing fruit. I'll kind of support that claim as, as I go along. But they are likely turning to idols. This idea of vanity and lies is, is, is speech that is used for those who are worshiping idols. In other words, you've turned away from Yahweh for, for your help and you are turning to idols and you are slandering me who is remaining orthodox. That's the general idea. I am following the Lord God Almighty. You have turned. You're the influencers in society and you've turned away from Yahweh and you are slandering those who remain faithful. See, when times become difficult, these Jewish leaders now turn from Yahweh to the gods of the nations and they deride the faithful. And this is David's plea. How long? How long will you do this? You should know better. He says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? This is the idea of um, going after the idols of the day. You claim faithfulness to Yahweh on one hand, and on the other hand, as soon as trouble hits, you turn to whatever might work. 
you turn to the pagan rituals and think that somehow maybe this um, will be beneficial for you. And David continues, he says, But know this, that God has set apart the godly for himself. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The thing that stood out here is that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. I just, as I'm studying, I'm just meditating, and what a blessing that phrase is. God has set apart the godly for himself. In other words, by God and for God. God has done what? It is he who has set apart individuals. He has made them godly. And what is the benefit of being set apart by God? God is our reward. God is a reward. We set things apart for a variety of reasons. At least two reasons we'll set things apart. We'll set things apart for our enjoyment and we'll set things apart for service. I don't know if people still do this today, but at least when I was growing up, we always had... um, China and plates that were reserved for guests and special occasions. They were not used for common, you know, we didn't use them every day. But when people were coming over, friends or guests, or it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, we got out certain utensils and certain plates. They were set apart. They were set apart for a particular purpose. David is saying, you have set apart God. You have set apart people for a particular reason. And the other reason we set things apart is for our enjoyment. Here's an amazing truth. God sets apart people for his enjoyment and for his service. God saves wicked people. God saving wicked people from sin brings joy to God. That's an amazing thing. You think, well, God saved me. That was pretty kind of Him. Your salvation brought great joy to heaven. If you get down in the dumps this this week and you start feeling like you need a little pickup of your self esteem. I would say, remember, God enjoyed saving you. God enjoyed redeeming you. It is His joy that you are His. That's an amazing truth. He has also set us apart for service. Sometimes I think we make the mistake, we fall into this this medieval idea that, that there is secular service to God and that there is clerical service of God, that there's clergy and laity, and that there, these two shall never meet, that a, the person who's really, really in service to God is the missionary or the pastor or the evangelist or the church planter or what have you, and then there's everything else. One of the great recoveries of the Reformation was the, ref, was the recovery of the dignity of work. 
probably one of the greatest restorations, I would say, is the dignity of being a parent. Maybe in our case, being a grandparent. When you're chasing kids around all day and you're just wondering, man, how in the world am I serving God? When you love your kids, chasing them around all day, taking them to ball practice and picking them up at school and dropping them off at school and teaching them to drive a car and putting up with their goofiness and their stupidness because they're kids. And you're training them to live in godly righteousness. You are probably doing one of the most godly things on earth. The job that you think, what, what does this matter? You are providing a service, something God has set us apart for service. God has set us apart to glorify his name. And when you're entering data into a computer, there is someone on the other end receiving that data, and for some, in some way, they are being served. You are serving and loving your neighbor. God has set us apart for his enjoyment and God has set us apart for service. And it's not just the missionary who serves God. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the, it's, it's the mom. It's the computer programmer. It's the data entry person. It's the administrative assistant. It's the principal at the school. It's the teacher at the school. It is all of these things that are bringing glory to God. God has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to him. Why? Because I am the righteousness of God and he has set me apart for himself. Therefore, he hears when I call. What a great truth that is. God hears when I call. What a confidence that is. God hears when I call. We then see this admonition, but be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David now calls to his adversaries to repent. I find this amazing. David is not calling for them to be wiped off the face of the earth. David is calling that they would repent. This idea where it says, be angry and do not sin. Um, I, I would probably understand that in the, this way. In your anger, do not sin. Or the literal word there is tremble. Um, tremble and do not sin. In other words, um, or, or in your anger, do not sin. Tremble. You should be fearful of Almighty God. So in your anger, do not sin. Since God promises to listen to the godly, curb your anger, avoid your arrogance, and humble yourself before God. And then he says this, um, ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Tremble. Since God listens to the godly, curb your anger, avoid arrogance. Now think and be silent. Think about this. Lie on your beds and think about what you're doing. 
it is the next phrase then that I think supports my idea that these people are um, have turned to pagan idols because he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Here's the admonition. Offer right sacrifices. Pagan worship required sacrifices, but they are sacrifices to a false god. They were wrong sacrifices, and David admonishes these individuals, these influences, these men of high regard, offer right sacrifices. Um, I think this is evidence that idolatry is being, being practiced. See, here's the thing. We do not come to God on our own terms. We do not come to God on our own terms. Sin needs atonement. Offering sacrifices is this idea of atonement. It is God, but it is God who has prescribed how that atonement is to be accomplished. We do not get to come to God in whatever way we see fit. We are not free to create our own methods. God has prescribed a way by which sins are atoned for. The right sacrifice is Jesus Christ. I don't get to say, well, I got a side hustle going on and me and God got a different thing and you know what, the Jesus thing works really good for you, but I've worked things out. It's different for me. No, it's not. There is no other sacrifice. There is one to offer a right sacrifice. That is Christ. Offer a right sacrifice and put your confidence or put your trust in God. In other words, don't put your trust in lies. Don't put your trust in made-up religion. Don't put your trust in made-up philosophies. Do not put your trust in the theories and the practicalities and the pragmatism of this world, the culture and the lies that are going on. Put your trust in God. So, just a quick summary. David does not cry out for revenge upon his adversaries, but he cries out for salvation to his adversaries. God, answer me when I call. Don't you see what's going on? You men who are coming against me, you who are swaying people away from Yahweh, here's what you need to do. You need to tremble. You need to make a right sacrifice and trust in God. This is basic gospel truth. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ has died for your sins. Now trust that his ways are sufficient. Then we get to our final expression or the the psalmist's final expression in verses 6 through 8. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Who will show us some some good? I think that this is the word to the pragmatist. That is, whichever God or goddess can deliver me, that's the one I'm going to follow. Who will show us some good? In other words, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Here is Yahweh and here are the pagan gods. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The pragmatist says, whatever works, I don't really care. Whatever works, whatever solves the solution, whatever causes um, this crisis to end, I don't care if you call him Yahweh or Buddha or whatever. All I care is that it works. All I care about is me and getting my needs met. Who will show us some good? The focus of their faith 
is, has this pragmatic edge. What's in it for me? Show me my own personal benefit. Once faith comes to be understood primarily in terms of personal benefit, pragmatics dictated that Israelites shop around for the best deal. If the Canaanite deities claim power uh, over fertility and agricultural productivity, then give them the sacrifice they require. And then very quickly, faith and religious practice becomes the means of manipulating God or the gods to fulfill my needs and desires. The foundational purpose of the covenant, that is to know Yahweh and to walk in his ways, gets lost in personal benefit. And we see that so often today. What works? What's going to make me happy? What's going to fulfill my needs? How am I going to get ahead? How am I going to have favor with my boss? How am I going to have whatever it is that I think I need? Whatever works. And there are people within, just as in David's day, people within the orthodox, so-called orthodox community saying, hey, abandon Yahweh because something else works better. We have, quote, Christian leaders today pulling the church, pulling God's people away because, listen, we just need to do what works. Whatever makes you comfortable, whatever makes you happy, whatever will satisfy your needs, just go that direction. That'll work. You don't really need to know much about God. You don't. Have, who cares about some sort of personal relationship? Just what works. I think we've said this morning, and we've been focusing this week. There, I don't think there are any prosperity gospel preachers in Kabul today. But there are many who know Yahweh. There are many who know God and have walked with God and perhaps will see him today. There is no personal benefit as far as temporal things, but there is great benefit and that's where David ends up going. There are many who will say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Lift up the light of your face. This is certainly an appeal back to Numbers. Chapter 6, the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The presence of God is all important for the psalmist. Not whatever personal benefit might be derived by by following pagan gods, but is God present? The presence of God. And then he goes on and he says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. This is why I think there's a personal agricultural crisis. That God, you have given me more joy than when our crops are going great. You are of greater joy than when I get a raise. You are of greater joy than when I win the lottery or get an inheritance or get a new this or a new that. You, Lord, are my joy. You are my greatest joy, not material gain, not professional success. I I need to repeat this off-quoted phrase from C.S. Lewis, who chastises, chides us because we think too small. 
Here's what he says. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lift up your face. Let your presence be upon me. You, Your presence is more joyful than anything that might be given to me through any temporal success. God is the, most, is the best and most satisfying good we can imagine. The psalmist then concludes, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is a changed man, isn't it? The, I want you to note that when we get to verse 8, the circumstances have not changed, at least to our knowledge. There's no indication in the psalm that David's external circumstances have changed one bit. There are still slanderers. There are still gossips. There are still people who are coming against David. That has not changed, and yet David can sleep. Note the beginning and the end. Note the emotion. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Do you hear me? And note the end. In peace, I lie down and sleep. For you, make me dwell in safety. Prayer changed the prayer. His circumstances haven't changed. Prayer does change things. And perhaps prayer ended up changing his circumstances. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Prayer changed David. David went from, answer me, I'm desperate. To, I'm going to take a nap. That's an awesome change. Prayer changes the prayer. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be, be afraid. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. Christian, you can sleep well. You can sleep well. Your Savior cares for you. So I'll conclude Psalm chapter 4 with this. We find rest in God alone. In the attack, we can rest. We can be confident that God rules the heavens and the earth. There is nowhere where God does not rule. One of the great things um, in our Bible study this morning, we studied the book of Daniel and we asked the question, who's in control? And how do we live when empires threaten Here we find that the presence of God is the source of our comfort, the source of our peace. So in the attack, when there's slander, gossip, people saying mean things on social media, coming against your business on Yelp or what have you, and they are lying. They are saying that you are doing something and they are lying. No, 
that we have a God who rules in the heavens. Acknowledge your dependence upon him. Lord, I need you. David is not going to anybody else. He's not going to answer me when I call, O God. He is not going to his friends for advice. He is not returning gossip and slander. But rather, he is calling upon God and saying, I need you. I am dependent upon you. Cry out to God. Again, David's circumstances did not change. David changed. Christian, you can sleep well. Your Savior cares for you. Father, we come before you this afternoon, this morning, and we thank you that you've blessed us. We thank you for your love and kindness towards us. And now be merciful to us and help us rely and be confident upon you. You are good to your people. We thank you now for Christ's sake. Amen.